All right, so the book of Romans. Do I need to wait till you turn this? Oh, look at this guy. Look at this guy. So fancy. All right, uh, so Romans chapter 11, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, is there anyone that was not here? I think last time we handed out the new handout. So if you were not here last week and do not have a Romans chapter 11, raise your hand. I'd love to give you one. Okay. Oh, I was like, I thought you were looking and you found one from last week. Who raised their hand over here? Oh, can you pass that down to those guys? What? How many do you need? Two? One? Okay. Yep. All right. Who else needs one? Anyone else? No? Okay. All right. I know I didn't just see what I think I saw, Matt. I know I did not see that. I thought I saw the bottom of your shoe right about here. I, I don't know how that would be possible unless you were putting your feet on the chair and you wouldn't do that. So I must have just saw something. I don't know. It was a mirage of some sort. It was crazy. That was a very bad thing to say. Okay, so, but that's okay because I am one. So Romans chapter 11. Uh, we jumped in last week and we opened up with, again, uh, Paul is addressing uh, the Jewish community here, the nation of Israel. And uh, we kind of express that again, uh, 9, 10, and 11, he kind of addresses these, uh, this Jewish aspect of the community there in Rome. But also I believe that he was speaking to the broader issues that the church was going through at the time. And so he is sharing his heart. He again is desiring above all else that Israel will come to know Christ. He is, he is adamant about that through all three of these chapters, 9, 10, and 11. I mean, really through the whole book. But we really see his heart at the beginning of 9, beginning of 10, and even again in 11. He's wanting them to know these truths. The first thing we talked about last week was that Paul wanted to make sure that the Israelites knew that God was not done with Israel. That God was not casting them away. Remember earlier on, we talked about the faithfulness of God being towards Israel, that he's still of chapter 10 as a great transition point to the next chapter. Uh, he says, but to Israel, he says, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and naysaying people. We talked about that last week. That's not a great testimony. Okay, if God calls you naysaying and disobedient children, that's not something you put on a t-shirt and wear proudly. Okay, you don't, you're not happy about this. But what's the point of verse 21 of chapter 10? What is God, by Paul, or through Paul, he wants them to know something. And here's what he wants them to know. No matter what happens all day long. Now think of it this way. If there's breath in your lungs, redemption is possible. Because God is making everything available to them. He says, I'm stretching forth my hands. And we said this before, when you think about that stretching forth of hands, there's so many things that come to our mind. There's imagery that comes to our mind about the welcoming arms of our Savior, the, the redemption that's available there. When somebody's got their hands open to you and this opening embrace is ready for you, you don't, you're not afraid to go to them because you see the love they have for you. And so God is desiring to communicate this again to Israel. We talked about the first few verses here, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Paul's t telling them that God is not done with them, that he's not cast them away. And then he gives them some evidence that supports this. Uh, we said the first evidence was what? What's the first thing that Paul, you can look right in your notes there. What's the first uh, evidence that Paul gives that God has not cast away Israel? Exhibit A in your notes. 
himself. Paul gives himself and he gives his Jewish lineage. He says, this is who I am according to the Jews. And he's saying that because he's saying, if God can save me and he's used me, then he can save and use you. We're still working this thing together in God's global plan. The next evidence he gives is the foreknowledge and faithfulness of God. The foreknowledge and faithfulness of God. God knew Israel would reject Christ. Not every Israelite rejected Christ, but as a nation, God knew that Jesus would come to Israel, and what would Israel do? As a nation, they would reject him. They would turn their back on him. And then the last exhibit we gave you, uh, Exhibit C, Paul offers an Old Testament quotation. Uh, This is a reference to 1 Kings 19. Uh, This is Elijah, right? This is Elijah. And what was the complaint of Elijah? We talked about this last week a little bit in the, what was it, verse... Yeah, verse 3. Yeah, verse 3. What, what is Elijah's complaint to God? He's serving God. He's doing what he's supposed to do. What's the complaint? Verse 3. Yes. Yes. That's okay. Yes, exactly. You guys are on the point. It's... it's They've killed the prophets. I'm all alone. There's no one else. I stand alone. Uh, you've, for, you've forsaken me. Why isn't there anyone else backing me? I'm all alone on this mountaintop, right? And what is God's response in verse 4? Summarize God's response in verse 4. I have set aside how many? 7,000 that have not bowed a knee. Man, if you're Elijah, what should that do? What should that news do? Should encourage you. Wait a minute. I thought I was one. Now I realize I'm actually 7,000 in one. There's 7,000 other believers that have not bowed their knee to Baal. They're standing for God. But Elijah was already at a point where he kind of already passed that point of no return in some ways. He still was kind of down in the dumps. Well, yeah, but... God continues to minister to him and to work with him. But I love that phrase there. I have 7,000 that have not bowed a knee. I referenced this last week. Uh, Elijah, in this whole situation, is talking about the northern kingdom. So a quick Bible study review or Bible history review. How many tribes in the northern kingdom? How many in the southern kingdom? I always ask it that way because if you get 10 up here, what's left? Two down there, okay? And the, the northern kingdom went into captivity, right? Both did, but the northern kingdom went earlier. What do we know about the northern kingdom kings? Like if you were listing all the kings of the north, what do we know about every one of them for the most part? Wicked, 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 right? You get to the southern kingdom, it's like followed God, followed God, wicked, wicked, followed God, wicked, followed God, wicked, wicked, followed God, followed God. It's more of a mix. Northern kingdom, most of them were not really good kings in God's eyes. So God sends captivity, what was, the, what was the nation that conquered the northern kingdom? The Assyrians, right? And we always say what? There was nothing left. The northern kingdom never came back to, to what it was. And while that's true to a point, and the southern kingdom goes into captivity by who? Just to kind of finish out, the kind of looking at both sides. Who captured the southern kingdom? The Babylonians, okay? They returned from their captivity, Right? It's beautiful stories of Nehemiah, so on and so forth. They come back, they rebuild the walls, right? They rebuild the temple. 
right? They're worshiping again. We know that that line is preserved, right? The line of Jesse, the root of Jesse, if you will. But when the northern kingdom, we automatically just dismiss the northern kingdom as though, well, they were just done. But actually, even after the Syrian captivity, there were a few of believing Israel, meaning the northern tribes, from the ten tribes who returned to form the nucleus of the Hebrew population in Galilee during the days of Paul. Now, as a, as a kingdom, it didn't return like it once was. But God still had a remnant that remained faithful, remained faithful. And next thing you know, during the days of Paul, here's this nucleus of believing Jews, Hebrews that are faithful to God. And so I say all that to say this. As a believer today, and I think I mentioned this last week, as a believer in the world today, the closer you get to Christ and the more you hunger for him and the more you desire to be like him, the more possible it is that you're going to see other believers who aren't there. You're going to get closer to God. You're going to look around and go, I'm the only one. They're all apathetic. Nobody loves Jesus like I do. Nobody's serving like I serve. Nobody cares like I care. It's a very dangerous place to be. When I say things like that, I'm, I'm meaning it to sound what? Oh, God, I love you so much. I'm so committed to you. But what does it really sound like when I say, no one loves God like I love God? It's just, it, it's false humility, right? It's pride. It's, it's Christian pride. It's, no, no, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone. But in my mind, I really do think I serve Jesus better than anyone does. I'm more consistent. But we've got to be careful because when we start to think those things, what does the enemy do with those kind of thoughts? I'm all alone. There's no one that loves Jesus like I love Jesus. What's the enemy going to start to do? Kind of build those out, right? Yeah, you're right. You are the only one. So you might as well just quit. I mean, they're all against you. And Elijah was there. So many believers have been there. But God reminds Elijah, as he reminds us, there is a remnant. There is always those that have believed. When you study church history, I honestly, I'm so excited for this epic study we're doing on Wednesday night, starting June 10th. Because I, I like Tim Challies. I, I, I've read a lot of his blogs and things like that. And Sandra actually has been kind of... Uh, listening to and was reading some of his stuff before I even knew who he was. And she was, she sent me a video one time and he did these like, what do you call that? Are they vlogs? Is that what it's called now? Anyway, like a video blog. Okay. She sent me this thing and I was like, I'm listening to this guy. I'm like, this guy's awesome. Okay. Mostly because he was ripping a, a guy I don't like, but no, he really wasn't doing that. <laughs> he really wasn't doing that. He kind of was. He kind of was. Uh, but, but I love, I love everything he said. He's so on point. And I love that he is very, he dives into everything. Like he gives it so much thought. And so he's a very intelligent guy. So I'm so excited to kind of see how he's going to look at going through church history and all these different little artifacts and relics and things and in the places and stuff. But when I think about church history, there are points in church history where, where the remnant really was a remnant, really was just a small group. I mean, imagine before, right before the Reformation, Right before the Reformation. So it's like, say it's like 1400s. You're with your little small church. You think you're weird and crazy because you're not part of the big Catholic following that's going on. You look at the Word of God and you're like, man, I think, we, I think this is supposed to be different than what we're hearing come from the pulpits. But there's no one there. And then you hear about this guy, Martin Luther. And all that he starts doing, you're just like, I'm not the only one. Somebody else is asking the same questions I'm asking. 
And all of a sudden you realize there are thousands of people that were already where you were and they're excited for what God is doing and then God begins to move in the church and then the remnant becomes the dominant force in the church. And now the false teachers and those that are teaching heresy, they start to kind of drift off into the smaller numbers and they're not as dominant. So my point in saying that is this, as we're serving Christ in this world today, don't ever think for a second that God is somehow losing in this deal. He is always working his plan. Verses 5 and 6. I think this is where we left off. Am I right? If you were here last week. Um, I usually write on my notes, stopped. And I didn't write that on this part. Uh, real quick, I got to confess something. I almost forgot to do this. This morning I was talking about finding the title for the sermon. You guys remember this? And I said I was so excited when I found it. I thought people would figure out I was in just being funny embellishing, just joking around. I got to confess, though, Greg was not actually in the office, okay? That was just a joke. He didn't really tell me to be quiet, okay? Greg comes to the other service. He's like, dude, he's like, you totally lied. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't lie. He's like, you said I was, I was in the office. I said, well, I was joking around. Everybody knew that. But just so you know, if you did not know I was joking, I confess, I repent, I turn, okay? I accept your grace and I pray for it. So thank you for that. But As soon as I was talking to Greg, I was like, wow, maybe somebody really thought that. Okay, so, but I wanted to get that off my chest. I got to repent to get back to where Jesus needs me to be. So, verses 5 and 6, Romans chapter 11. Can I get a volunteer to read Romans uh, 11, 5, and 6? Judy, thank you. Okay, so we're talking about this idea. He, he tells them as an illustration, he talks about way back in the Old Testament. There were 7,000 that had not bailed or bowed a knee to Baal. Then he fast forwards and he says, okay, you know that story. You've heard that story. You know the truth of that story. Now let me just tell you, there's a remnant today. I love that Paul writes the way he does because he doesn't just throw that out in this case. He says, hey, way back here, Elijah. By the way, why was Elijah, or why do you think Elijah was one of the ones that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Jesus? Was Elijah the only prophet in the Old Testament? Didn't even Elisha do more great works than Elijah did? So why Elijah? Why not Elisha? Why not Jeremiah? Not Daniel. Daniel, famous Daniel, prayed in the was in the lion's den. Elijah is considered among the Jews the, to a sense, the greatest prophet. But also, when you say Elijah, it's representing all of the prophets. When I say Moses, what do we think of? Moses and the the law. So Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets of God. That's kind of how it's broken down in understanding among Jewish culture, at least what I've heard. So Moses to the Jews, Moses, when they hear Moses, they think law. Elijah, they think prophets. So Elijah is kind of like the symbol, the representation of all the prophets. And so when you hear this here, Paul goes to Elijah, the man, the Jewish prophets who defeated the prophets of Baal and stood on the mountaintop and defied the words of the queen. 
And he uses that as an example. He says, okay, because you know that was true back here. Guess what? God is still doing that today. God is still doing that today. So he says here in verse uh, 5, even so then at this present time, so specifically in context, as Paul was writing these words, that's what he's specifically referring to. Obviously, I believe if God did it in the Old Testament, God does it in the New Testament, God's going to do it today. I believe that's setting a pattern. But then he says this in verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Why does he get to grace? Because he says it's a remnant by, elect, by the election of grace. By the election of grace. Um, again, we talked about some Wednesday night. Election is not a bad word. Okay, it's in the Bible. What does election mean? How is it defined? Chosen. Okay, and who chose who? God chose them. However, we in response to God choosing us and, and revealing the gospel to us, what do we do of our own free will? We choose him. Okay, so there's this dynamic here. But you have to understand, it's all by what? Grace. It's all by grace. After Paul gives his lines of evidence, he moves to a conclusion. It is ridiculous to think that Israel has been entirely rejected because at that present time, there are those saved by grace and kept through grace in Israel. Not because of the line of descent, but by grace. If it is by grace, it cannot be of works. That's the argument that Paul makes. If it is by grace, it cannot be of works. There's no such thing as works-based grace. It's either grace or it's works. Now, I've said this before, but just a little side note here. The understanding of grace separates Christianity from every other world belief system or world faith system. Okay? In, in Judaism, how do I gain, in a Jew's understanding, how do I gain the favor of God? Obey the law by faith, sacrifice, okay? We know the object of the faith is the sacrifice, sacrificial system, the law. Their heart can be right, okay, before Christ. They may have worshipped through the sacrifice and through the law, but their heart was God told us to do this, so we're doing it. So don't think the Old Testament Jew was wrong in putting weight on the sacrifice. Before Christ, that's what they were told to do. It's the coming of Christ that transitioned everything to now the object of salvation is not the physical sacrifice, meaning the lamb, or keeping of the law, it's now you put your faith and trust in the sacrifice, in the lamb. That's now our object of our faith. How about in Islam? How am I um, saved in Islam or their understanding? Good works. Pray, what is it, seven times a day, whatever it is. Okay. Yeah, obey the law, the word of Muhammad. Do these things, Okay. Hinduism and Buddhism, what's the basis of salvation there? Works, right? That's the idea of karma. I do good things. I live a good life. I might come back as a little bit higher up species. I do good works. I do good things. I come back a little bit higher up. I do this over and over again, however many life cycles it takes to become perfect enough, good enough to enter nirvana or heaven. It's all based in works, right? Right? Whenever I say that, somebody always thinks about what they're going to come back as. I don't know if that's just what happened. But yes, yes, every time someone's like, I don't want to come back as like a mosquito or something. Like, this is crazy, okay? So, a tick, okay, yeah. I won't say why that's where you went and that's where you think you'll come back as. But anyway, so every one of those systems, that's right, yeah, exactly. Every one of those systems 
Now, there's more religions than that, more belief systems than that, but those are the ones that they found their basis in, right? A lot of those other teachings come out of these things as their foundation. It's all works-based. It's all do, do, do. In Christianity, it's the only belief system in the world that starts with what God did for us. Everything else is do these things, and when you die, hopefully you'll get in. Do these things, and when you die, maybe you're good enough to come back as a little bit better. But only in Christianity do I actually come to God on the basis of what God did for me, not what I do for God. And that is why it is so tragic that so many believers are saved by grace, they believe they're saved by grace, and then they live as though it's not grace. They live as though it's works. Now, this is where usually someone will think, but wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to do good works? Doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to work for Christ? Doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to pray? Doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to read the Bible? Doesn't it say we're supposed to give? We're supposed to serve? We're supposed to evangelize? It says all those things and so much more. But none of those things save us. James says it this way, out of my faith will come my works. Not out of my works comes my faith. There's a big difference there. And so Paul's making it so clear. Works is done. There's no more works. It's, it's done. It's over with. There's only grace. Because he says, because if it's by grace, then it is no more of works. That's pretty simple stuff. If it's by grace, it's not by works. But I, I, I'm telling you guys, I've had so many conversations with people over the years that they battle with this. Now, maybe it's because of how they were raised, the kind of churches they were in. Um, I've always said that that what I call extreme fundamentalism, legalism in churches, they will say to you, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. It's a relationship, not a religion. But then they, they preach and teach as though you maintain your salvation through works. It's not true. Grace is the foundation of our belief system, not works. The only work we put our faith in is the work of Christ on the cross. Okay, that's it. Everything else is we understand is grace. So, uh, he exp explains all of that. Then we move into the next part of the notes here. Um, wait, did I grab the right thing here? Yes. Okay. The, nation rejects, the nation's rejection leads to, verses 7 and 8, self-inflicted blindness and slumber. So can I get a volunteer to read 7 and 8? Romans 11, 7 and 8. Who wants to read? Lance. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, this is self-inflicted blindness and slumber, okay? Uh, as a nation, they rejected Christ, but there were some that believed, right? There's examples in the Gospels of Jews, Israelites believing, right? Remember the disciple, was it Nathaniel? Said, you know, here's an Israelite that has no guile. I believe that was Nathaniel. There's no lying, there's no deceit in his mouth. He's pure, he's an Israelite indeed, Jesus says. So, again, nationally, in a national broad sense, they rejected Christ. But we see that doesn't refer to the individual. It's speaking as a whole. So there were individuals, because we know that to be true, because he just said there's a remnant that believe. Right? So there's a remnant that believes, but as a whole, the nation has 
rejected. Those that rejected, okay? And again, I believe there's two sides to this. We read God gave them blindness. God gave them slumber that they would not see, would not hear. I believe this is just like what happened with Pharaoh. These Jews, these Israelites rejected Messiah, rejected truth. They rejected the gospel. However you want to say it. They hardened their hearts to the things of God, meaning pertaining to Christ. So God said, okay, fine. I'm going to allow you to continue in that state. I don't think it's God made them. They have no choice. They have to be blinded to it or that they chose this and God had no part in it. I think it's both. They hardened their hearts. They chose to reject. So God says, okay, I'm in agreement with you. Now you're, you're blind to these things because you choose to be, so I'm allowing this to take place. I'm going to cause this to take place. So due to their rejection, rejection, as we looked at in chapter 10, the Jews did not find what they were looking for. What were they looking for? They were looking for righteousness. While the Gentiles, according to chapter 10, found it and weren't even looking for it. The Jews are seeking for righteousness and they're looking for, as Renee alluded to earlier, kind of by accident, but still true to this point, they were looking for their own righteousness. It was self-righteousness. They didn't find the righteousness of God. The Gentiles weren't even looking for it. God graciously showed them the gospel. They received it and found the righteousness the Jews had been longing for. And I love that Paul points out that, di- that dynamic here. Uh, the word blinded here means to render insensitive. To render insensitive. Because they rejected the truth, they became insensitive to the things of God. Which leads to Paul quoting of Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10. This reference is to unseeing eyes and unhearing ears. Each of the gospel writers used this idea to recognize the Jews, again, as a nation, their failure to see Jesus as Messiah. So again, this is not a new idea. What Paul's saying is, you know the story back in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah They chose to harden their hearts and not to see, so God hardened their hearts and allowed them not to see. He doesn't force them this way. He merely allows it to take place because they're already there. Uh, Did I give you all the references there? Matthew 13, 14, Mark 4, 12. Did I give you those in your notes? Okay. Um, If you want to jot them down, you can. These are the examples in the Gospels where the Gospel writers use this idea to recognize the Jews as a nation their failure to see Jesus as Messiah. So in Matthew 13, 14, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, John 12, 40. So again, Matthew 13, 14, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, and then John 12, 40. So again, this is an idea of reaffirming. Um, does anyone need anyone repeated? Got him? Okay. This is reaffirming this idea of this, this blindness that they have over them. The word slumber in these verses means the spirit of stinging. The spirit of stinging. When I was researching this, I thought, how did we get the word slumber from that? Um, but this is what the, words, or the word actually means. It is used for the numbness that results of a bite or a poisonous sting. So this word slumber carries with it the idea of the numbness that comes from a bite or a poisonous sting. In their unbelief, God gave them a blinding stupor and a poisoning insensitivity toward the truth of God. 
It's basically this. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel, whatever it was. They understood Messiah, but they rejected it. They hardened their hearts. They weren't willing to listen. So God says, okay, that's a self-inflicted blindness and slumber. I'm in agreement with that. Here, now you're not going to be able to see. You're not going to be able to hear because of your choice, and I'm in agreement with that. But I find it amazing that numbness, that insensitivity to the things of God. It's why we scratch our heads when somebody hears the gospel and they just don't seem to get it or they don't seem to care to get it. They're just, they just are like, whatever, I don't really care. And you scratch your head, you're like, how can you treat the gospel that way? Don't you want to know? It's like they're just insensitive to the things of God. So we see Paul using this illustration. Now, by the way, if you're a Jew sitting in the audience listening to this being read, does that make you feel good? Woohoo! That's, he's talking about us, okay? No, it's meant to, what is it supposed to do? Provoke you to realize, is that me? Have I reached that point? Um, then in verses 9 and 10, we see the turning of the tables. Again, along the same illustration. And then I think we'll... Yeah, we'll stop there, and if anyone has any questions, we'll go through that. Because this kind of ties in with 7 and 8. So the turning of the tables, verses 9 and 10. One more volunteer to read, if I have somebody that's willing. Romans 11, verses 9 through 10. Anyone? Renee. Okay. Sheepishly see that hand. Go ahead. I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Okay, so again, the terms used here enforce the idea of the turning of the tables to their opposite intent. What, what normally is the feeling in the Word of God, especially in the Old Testament, when you talk about a feast? Like, what are we talking about when it comes about a feast in the Old Testament? What's the feel of that, the attitude, the atmosphere? Celebration. Okay. When you walk away from a, a feast, how should you feel? Full, satisfied. Okay? Hopefully not too stuffed. Okay? Okay. Happy, joyful. Okay? There's a celebratory joy in this idea. I mean, through all, all through the Bible, we see feasts being talked about as a good thing. There's this understanding of enjoying the company of others. How does the, the father celebrate the prodigal son returning? With what? A feast. Right? Let's have this great party and we're going to have all this food because, man, my son has returned. So what does Paul say here? He says this, And David said, Let their table be a snare and a trap. So now this table represents the idea of a feast. This celebration that's supposed to be enjoyable, let it be a snare to them, a trap to them. The terms used again are to enforce the idea of the turning of the tables to their opposite intent. The table represents the plentiful mercy and blessings of God to Israel. And when you think about feasting, it's usually done after a harvest. We're praising God. Look at all that he blessed us with. He's so good to us. His mercy. But again, now those very blessings of God have become a trap into self-righteousness. The application of this idea is clear. Those that seek righteousness in their own merits will find themselves, quote, bowing down their back always to sin and self. Bowing down their back in complete submission to sin and self. While those that seek righteousness in and through the gracious gift of Christ enjoy the blessing of God's mercy 
and presence. The Jews are supposed to be God's people that are just enjoying his presence, but they reject. So now those feasts and celebrations, from God's point of view, are now just a trap. And you think you're good, but you're not. You think you're good. You're filled up, but it's not with the things of God. You're self-righteous. and you're, It says and I, how it ends that in verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. Just always bow down in blindness, in a, in a stupor, unaware of what's going on around them because they chose to be unaware. This is similar, in my mind, to what Jesus started doing in Matthew. I believe Matthew chapter 13 is where he transitioned to parables and started teaching in parables. Do you know that when you read the words of Jesus, he actually says, this is so that those that want to hear have to put, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, have to put in a little work. And those that just want to reject and criticize and tempt and trap, you're never going to get it. And again, we read that and we go, wait a minute. But isn't that God not being gracious, offering redemption? Again, I believe at any mo- every moment, God is offering grace and redemption. But if I choose to blind my eyes and to look at Christ and say, until you do it my way, I don't want nothing to do with you, and I shake my fist in rebellion, I believe God, again, knowing all things, will say, fine. You're going to harden your heart. You're going to live in that to the day you die. I know this to be true. So I'm going to harden your heart too. Again, just like we see with Pharaoh. Now, some would ask, what about one of these Jews that finally gets it and goes, I want to receive Christ. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I I call out to Jesus. I believe that person would be saved. But the part of this passage that's maybe the most concerning and should be is that that's not what happens to this group of people, apparently. Paul seems to suggest they stay in this stupor for the rest of their life. And again, because they choose to be in the stupor. They choose to be blind and slumber. Uh, but I, again, I believe God is gracious. And if someone calls out, I believe he will save. Uh, even in the book of Revelation, we see in the early part of the Revelation, of everything going on, we see people coming to Christ. I believe in every time period of church history, every time period of our present day and the future events, God is always willing to save those who will call out to him, those who will receive and repent of their sin. So I do believe that's available. But again, Paul is being very stern here. These are strong words that are being used, strong quotes from the Old Testament. And again, I find that interesting. He's using the Old Testament in these first 10 verses so much to show them what? You've known this. You've known this, you've known this. And that's kind of how he references in chapter 10. Guys, this isn't new material. When Jesus stepped on the scene, you should have known instantly who he was. You should have seen it, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, and been like, that's our Messiah. But they were so caught up in what they wanted Jesus to be that they missed it. Not all of them, but as a nation, we see that taking place. And so, again, we see this strong language for a reason. The Word of God is meant to warn us not just comfort us, but to warn us as well. And so again, the Word of God is doing multiple things. Um, If you're a Jew sitting in the church at Rome and you're hearing this, or you're in the community and you hear this, it doesn't bring warm and fuzzies. But, But I believe God's point is to shake them out of their apathy and to force them to realize, have you rejected to the point of blindness or do you still have sensitivity to the things of God? Are you, are you still somewhat sensitive to the things of God? As, as a part of the nation that God said are his people, So again, are you still sensitive to the things of God so that you can understand the truth of the gospel? Well, let's do this, guys. We're going to go ahead and stop right here. 
um, and I will try to remember that this is where we stopped. Uh, but I do want to open it up real quick. Any questions, comments, or thoughts? I know this is kind of a tough passage. The language is, I'll be honest, it's, I don't love the language in this text. I wish it said something different, but um, when we look at the counsel of God's word, it's, it's all of God's word. So we have to take it all into light as we consider these things. Any questions, comments, or thoughts before we close in prayer? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Right. Which, again, is what Israel was supposed to be, but they didn't consist. Now, sometimes they did, but often they didn't. They weren't that light. Um, David is an example of showing what the light and salt is supposed to look like when he says, is there not a cause? But yet we see as a nation, they weren't all about that. The church, what's our calling? To be a light and a salt in the world to shine the light of Christ. Some are blinded to it and they'll never see, but that's not for us to decide. We're just called to share the light and let God dis- work all that out in their heart and minds. It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know that I have an answer for that. Um, because I've always thought the same thing with like Pharaoh or other examples. Why did God make a point of saying, okay, now I'm hardening your heart? Um, yeah, I've never heard really a, an answer to that specifically when I've read this, studied these things. Um, I don't know that I saw that anywhere brought up as a question. Um, but I can, I'll look into it this week and then we'll see. We'll talk about it maybe next Sunday. It's a great question. Again, my my knee-jerk reaction to it would be to say that, I don't know, maybe that's a stretch. It could be that God is communicating the seriousness of their decision back to them. That they, that as they have made this definitive decision to say, I reject you, God is in turn saying, okay, I'm in agreement with you. I, I your, your, your decision is so serious, I'm taking it just as serious, and I'm saying, fine. And maybe it's like when Jesus said, those that believe have eternal life, but those that don't believe are condemned already. Again, showing the weight of that choice, the weight of that decision. So, But that's a good, good question. I'll have to look into that this week and see what I can kind of come up with, what others have said or suggested along those lines. It's a great question. Yes? Yes. Yes. 
Ja. Right. Yes, and we will get into that next week about the provoking unto jealousy. So absolutely, that may kind of open things up too. But I'll do some more looking into that. That's a good point. Anyone else? Thoughts, comments, or questions? All right, let's go ahead and pray. We'll ask God to be with us the rest of tonight and this week to come. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your grace. Lord, we thank you for the reality of your word, the sternness at which it warns us about uh, hard-heartedness and and rejecting of you, Lord. Father, I believe that while we may not fully understand all that's taking place in the spiritual realm between you and those that reject you or those that have hardened their hearts, um, Lord, I always think, where's that line uh, between hardening our heart today but yet still sensitive to some degree the things of God so that Five years from now or ten years from now, the gospel's preached and that person comes to Christ. I, I don't know where that line is, Lord. I don't know when someone reaches that point. Um, so our calling is the same, to preach the gospel, to make it known that they can be saved and redeemed of their sins. Father, we pray that in all these things that you would be glorified. Give us wisdom in knowing these things, Lord. Reveal your word to us that it would be clear to us that along with the rest of Scripture— we'd be able to come to a conclusion. Lord, we may not understand every aspect, but I pray that we would know enough to be effective in this world for you and your kingdom. Lord, go with us now. Thank you for all that you do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.